So we have this uh, beautiful nativity set just by how many of you grew up in a home where maybe your grandmother or, or maybe your mother had a nativity set like in the house? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember my, my mom had a, a really cool, like, a cloth nativity set, and, and my grandmother loved nativity sets. My grandmother was a good Catholic woman, and so in her living room, she had angel porcelain, like, porcelain angels, like, all over, and at Christmas time, man, the, the nativity set was in full effect, and uh, you think about the nativity, I, I love what an image, right? I mean, that we can look at this, and we can see the baby Jesus, and Mary, and Joseph, and we can see the shepherds, and the wives. Wiseman and and I don't know like I, I was thinking about the nativity I've been thinking about the nativity a lot and uh, just asking the Lord to show me what to share with you tonight and I was thinking about how you know maybe we can identify with some of the different individuals who are at the nativity but I don't know maybe sometimes you, you wonder like would I have been at the nativity I mean, there were very few who actually were. You think about 2,000 years ago at the Christmas story, there were very few who were actually there. Like statistically, probably we wouldn't have been there. And in fact, when you think about the Christmas story, there's some notable individuals that are missing. Some people that probably should have been at the nativity that just didn't make it. And so this evening, I want to just take a few minutes, and we're going to talk about three different groups of people that probably should have been at the nativity that weren't there, and I promise you I won't be long-winded tonight. I know, how many of you have, still have dinner after this that you're getting to? Or Yeah, and, and me just saying it is making you hungry, and so we'll stop with that. But here's a first, the first group of people that, that didn't make it to the nativity and should have been there are the self-important. The self-important. At the very beginning of Luke's account of this Christmas narrative, we, we have this verse, and, and maybe you grew up hearing this, maybe even you, 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 heard, you watched the Charlie Brown Christmas, and, and, and sometimes as a little kid, these words just kind of roll right past us because we want to get to the good part of the Christmas story. But Luke 2 verse 1 says, At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Here, the first character that we're introduced to is Augustus, Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar Augustus was the nephew of probably someone you learned about in English class or in history class, Julius Caesar, right? And uh, Caesar Augustus was actually his successor, and, and Augustus, uh, he, he, he chose his name, because back then, if you were a Caesar, you got to choose your name when you became the Caesar. Kind of like the Pope will choose, when he becomes Pope, he gets to choose whatever name he wants. I think that's a cool thing, right? Like, wouldn't you like to, every once in a while, just change your name? I don't know in particular what I would change my name to because Kenneth means handsome, and I think it's really appropriate. <laughs> Google it. Google it. Some of you will. Fact check me. It literally means handsome, and so I like my name. But, but he, so he chose this name, and it, sig it signified greatness, and, and he really thought of himself as a pretty great person. In fact, he declared himself to be deity, which most of the Caesars did back then, and, and, and people would worship him, a, a mere mortal. You know, a guy who spends time sitting on the toilet actually went around telling people that he was God, that he should be worshipped. What he didn't know is that the one true everlasting God was about to use him and to use his opinions and to use his dictates in order to accomplish the very purposes of God. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 tells us this, that when the right time came, or some of your translations say in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Like, at just the right moment. You think about 
where things were. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to bore you. Some of you guys like this kind of stuff. Some of you don't. But I'm a, I'm a history nerd. I love history. I re- love reading biographies and, and all of that. But you think about it, in this pivotal moment in the Roman Empire, it was like the best moment for God to send Jesus. Pax Romana. Some of you are like, Pax Romana, what is that? Is that a show on Netflix? No, Pax Romana, Roman peace, right? Like this idea that there was no conflict. What a great time for Jesus to be born, that, that, that when he would grow up and, and be crucified and risen and ascend to the Father, his followers were able to go all over the Roman Empire and to declare that message because there was peace. There wasn't conflict between people groups. Maybe you learned in world history class that all roads lead to where? You're like, I didn't learn that in history class, or I forgot it, right? All roads lead to Rome. Like, the, during the time, in the time before Jesus, there was literally these road systems that were built all over the Roman Empire, and so travel became so much easier. There was a common language, the Greek language, and, and so now they could communicate so much easily along all these different people groups. Augustus was actually unintentionally helping prophecy to be fulfilled, The ancient prophet Micah had said this. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. What does that mean? A ruler is coming who has actually existed forever. Isn't that crazy? Will come from you on my behalf. And so here Augustus, you know, makes this proclamation, this decree that that a census should be taken throughout his empire. And what he does is he puts into motion that a carpenter, young, maybe green carpenter named Joseph, who is actually in Nazareth, has to take his pregnant bride, or bride-to-be, all the way to Bethlehem because the emperor had declared it so. He had to go all the way back to his home place, the place where his family had grown up. Forget Mary, did you know? Maybe we should be singing Augustus, did you know? Because Augustus had no clue. By the way, Mary did know, just to put all that at ease. It's a great song. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. Maybe we should sing Augustus, did you know? He didn't have a clue. You know, sometimes I think we, we, we get in seasons of life, and maybe, I don't want to pick on the younger generation, but I think sometimes this is part of youthfulness, that we really do feel like we're in control. We really do feel like we've got, you know, life by its tail and, and you know, we're going to make this thing happen. And life has a way of reminding us that we're not in control. And I wish it wasn't the case. Some of you are sitting here tonight. And while everybody else is celebrating, you're grieving. And you know, like you've had an up-close personal illustration we've had individuals even this past week that we don't have control when it comes to life see the self-important should know that there's a place at the nativity that if they would let down their importance if they would humble themselves there's a place at the nativity for them maybe you're in this room and you kind of think of yourself more highly than you ought (laughs) I want to invite you to the nativity I want to invite you to the cross. I want to invite you to the empty tomb. The second group of people that weren't at the nativity that really ought to have been there is the self-absorbed. The self-absorbed. Scripture says that, uh, well, well, you know, well, let's get into it. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16, it says the shepherds, which I'm not going to go into the whole story, but the, shep- the shepherds were an unclean group of people. They weren't even allowed in the courtyard of the temple. 
And so a lot of people kind of look down their noses at these shepherds, but these shepherds are out with their flocks, and they get a pyrotechnic, angelic invitation to come see this baby that's being born. And, and we read in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 16, it says, The shepherds hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, this is the part I want you to get, after seeing the baby Jesus, the shepherds went and told everyone what had happened. And what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who sh- heard the shepherd's story were, what's the word up there? Let me, let's try it again. All who heard the shepherd's story were what? This is remarkable to me. I, I tried to do a word study on this, this word astonished. And it means to be impressed. It means to marvel. It carries the idea of being utterly amazed by something. So you have these shepherds, you know, this motley crew of guys. People didn't really know what to think of them. And they see Jesus and they're so blown away by by this encounter with Jesus. And they go and they tell everybody they know. And everybody they know goes, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's that's great. The Messiah's been born in Bethlehem. He's only a mile away. Wow, that's good. I'm glad you got to see him. But they didn't go themselves. It's like the equivalent today in social media of, Oh, I like your post. I'll even comment on your post. But I'm going to forget it in about 30 seconds as soon as I scroll to the next post, right? I think we live in a culture where we are so self-absorbed. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've got a friend whose life has been radically changed by following Jesus. And you've seen the evidence in your life. You've seen, you knew the before and you've seen the after, and there's no denying that God has changed their life. But let's be truthful, you've never investigated Jesus for yourself. Maybe you're too busy. Maybe you're too preoccupied with life. I want you to know that every time you hear the message of Jesus, God is close to you. Every time you feel just this drawing inside of you that you can't even really explain, God is close to you. Don't don't take these heavenly invitations for granted. And I would say to you, if you're here and you'd say, Ken, I'll just be completely honest, I have been absorbed with my life. I have been, you know, focused on myself. Can I just say that there's an invitation to the nativity? There's an invitation for you to the cross. There's an invitation for you to the empty tomb. The third group of people are the self-sufficient the self-sufficient were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were, they were totally blind, even though they should have been the ones of all who knew exactly what was going on because they knew the prophets. They had memorized these ancient prophecies. And yet it's almost as if they were clueless, isn't it? Matthew chapter 2 says, Some wise men came from eastern lands and arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. That, I've always wondered at that. That everyone in Jerusalem would be disturbed by this? He called, he, Herod, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. And he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Here's the response, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. So track with me for a moment. A group of pagan, non-Jewish, unreligious, at least when it came to Judaism, men travel hundreds of miles 
because they believe that there's some heavenly occurrence that leads them to think that a Messiah or a ruler or a king is being born in Israel. And they come all the way. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe that this took them months and maybe even over a year to get from where they were to Jerusalem. And the religious leaders failed to travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I was wondering about this. I was, I was wondering, well, is this really just an example of what we talked about, the second point of being self-absorbed? Is it because they were self-absorbed? And I don't think that that's actually the issue. I think the issue is that they thought they were fine with God. That in their minds, they had reached the pinnacle of spiritual success and that they didn't need anything else added to the religion. It's as if they were saying, if this is the Messiah, let him come to us. Years later, the Messiah did come to them. And when he came, they refused to listen. Maybe you're here tonight and you consider yourself to be very religious. And we're, we're glad you're here. And religion, in one sense, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe you attend church regularly and you pray and you give money to good causes. And I'm all for that. If you want to write a check to Journey Church, man, we'll take it tonight. But when you boil it down, your spirituality, your religion, really is all about you. It's all about what you do for God. God, I have done this. Aren't you so proud of me? I have the unfortunate privilege as a pastor, I've been a pastor now for over two decades, of being at people's deathbeds and being around people when they, they know the end is coming. And often we have this conversation that you probably don't normally have you know, on the line at, at Whirlpool or, or as a teller at Krogan, a conversation about, do you have a hope, do you have an assurance that if you die, that you're going to heaven? And most of the time, the response that I get back, and, and I don't say it with a heavy hand, and I don't say it, you know, looking down my nose at people, pointing to them, it's just really curiosity, because as a pastor, I want to know that they have that assurance. And often I'll hear someone respond by saying, well, I think I've been a pretty good person. I think I've done enough good that I'd be admitted into heaven. But you know, that's not how the Bible says that we get to heaven. That heaven is not us doing. Heaven is what God did for us when he sent Jesus to the cross. Paul, Paul wrote these words. He says, but when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. And I love this part. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Like we've been rescued not because we've been good, not because we've been faithful, not because we've been religious, not because of the list of good things that we can show to God. No, he says this, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. That this baby Jesus didn't stay a baby. No baby stays a baby. In fact, every once in a while, we, as parents or grandparents, you kind of go, oh, I wish they would stay this little. You know, I'm looking at this precious baby over here. Oh, I wish they would stay this little. But here's the thing. None of us really do. <laughs> right? Because that would be really awkward and really weird. And in some situations, we have babies who emotionally and even physically have to be cared for their whole life. And no one wants, we, we don't go into Parenthood hoping for that, right? Like the idea is that they will grow up 
and Jesus grew up. And at the age of 30, he he became a rabbi. He became a teacher, a religious teacher, and he began to, to draw people to himself, and he taught incredibly, the greatest communicator. I don't care what you think about Jesus and what you believe, whether he's a son of God or anything like that. I, I, you can't argue with me that Jesus isn't the greatest communicator who's ever walked this earth. We're still talking about him. We're still reading his words 2,000 years later. But not only was he a great communicator and a great teacher, he performed miracles. He healed. He, he did extraordinary things. And three years into his public ministry, he willingly allowed himself to be horrifically tortured, brutally beaten, executed on a cross where he died. That's what execution means. Breathed his last breath and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. The work is done. I've completed what you gave me to do. And three days later, He busted through the wall of death, proving that he has all authority and all power, and that we can come to him, the self-important, the self-absorbed, the self-sufficient, that we can come to him. And, 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 And here's the thing, our posture is not one of, God, look at how good I've been. I've talked to so many friends. I was talking to a friend recently, and and the issue of him not becoming a follower of Jesus, he says, I've just got to get my life together first, Ken. He didn't actually say it that way. He said, I've got to get some other stuff together, Ken. <laughs> and I said, I said, listen, that's, the whole point of Christianity is that we come to God in all of our brokenness and our helplessness and our powerlessness. We come to God not with our list of accomplishments, but we come to God with all of our sin, all of our regret, all of our shame, all of our guilt. We don't come to God with strength, We come to God with weakness, and we say, God, I can't. I don't have what it takes. I need you. And he looks at that, and he goes, that's what I've been waiting for, that we would commit all of our life and all of our will to his care and to his control, and that's what he's wanting. And maybe you've never done that. And maybe you've never come to a place in your, in your life, maybe your spirituality, your religion has all been about yourself and you would recognize it can't be about myself. It's gotta be about what Jesus did for me. In fact, that's why we celebrate Christmas is that God, the everlasting God, the eternal God, the God of all wisdom and strength and power would come down and become one of us. Fleshy, one of us pointing us to God, showing us how we can be, but also pointing how it can happen through his death and resurrection. So the question is, have you humbled yourself? Have you humbled yourself? Have you received his grace? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you asked him to come into your life? A few minutes ago, we sang, oh, come all ye faithful. And there's a place for that. But sometimes there's also a place to say, oh, come all ye unfaithful. There's a place for you at the nativity. There's a place for you at the cross, at the empty tomb. We're going to watch this video, and then I'll come up and close things out, and we'll sing Silent Night and light our candles and do all that in a few minutes.
Christ is born for you. Wherever you find yourself in the picture, you are loved. I think sometimes we we get the idea that God is in this cosmic bad mood. It's not true. Scripture is full of examples of God saying, I love you. I love you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. And the invitation is to come to Jesus. Yes, we recognize his birth at Christmas. But come also to the cross. Come to the empty tomb. Receive the forgiveness and life that he is available for you. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to embarrass anyone this morning. We're not going to ask anybody to stand or to come forward. 
But maybe you're here and you just feel a pulling inside of you. You don't even know how to explain it. I would tell you that it's the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus. Maybe you've never humbled yourself. Maybe you've been very religious. Maybe you've, maybe you've done all the right things. But this evening you recognize your need for Jesus. To humble yourself. To acknowledge that you're not as important as you think you are. To receive his life that he has available for you. His forgiveness that he has available for you. So if you say, Ken, that's, that's me this evening. I need Jesus in my life. I need his forgiveness. I, I want to start following him. Would you pray for me, Ken? If that's you, again, we're not going to embarrass you. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray with you? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can lower your hands after you've raised them, at least six of you. Anybody else that would say, that's me? Thank you. I'm just going to ask all over this room, would you pray this prayer with me, regardless of whether you raised your hand or not? And Say, Ken, I don't even know if I believe this. Just, just humor me and let's just pray this out loud. And Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. I acknowledge that I need your life. I need your forgiveness. Forgive me. Show me the way. Empower me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You say, that's too easy, Ken. <laughs> it's got to be more complicated than that. There's got to be some class I got to go to. There's got to be some hoops, right? There's always hoops to jump through in a church. No, the message is really simple. Come, humble yourself, acknowledge Jesus in his death and his resurrection and receive his grace in his life. Now that's the start of the journey. He'll show you the next step. As you read his word, as you become a part of a body of believers, you'll, you'll learn, but that's the first step is receiving his grace.